0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our episode today is about one man's journey to turn his passion for craft into a craft business. And our guest is Alex LeBlanc, founder of Calibration Coffee Lab in Greenville, South Carolina. Alex is creating a very good product. He is methodical and obsessive about quality, and he's a really nice person. So I think you're going to find that he is a very easy person to root for. And I would encourage you to check out CalibrationCoffeeLab.com. Take a look around and give him a shot. And to make that an even more enticing proposition, you can use the code Coffee Love on your first order to make it even easier to check out for yourself. Alex's handiwork. This episode of Crafted is presented by our Blister Craft Collective which is a group of some of our favorite craft companies across all different sorts of product categories. And so we will include a link to the Blister Craft Collective in the show notes of this episode. So check them out because I have a hunch that some of our favorite companies will become some of your new favorite companies too. And now let's get to my conversation with Alex LeBlanc. Here we go. Alex, how are you today
1: and where are you today? Hey, Jonathan, great to see you. I am doing well. (laughs) I am uh, in Greenville, South Carolina at my house talking to you. So important question here, Alex. When did
0: you first start getting into coffee? Not like when you had your first cup, but when did it happen in your life where you started being like, "I'm, I'm in on this coffee
1: thing? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think everybody in coffee kind of has that aha moment or that that cup that just kind of changes everything. And for me, I don't think it was in a third wave shop or anything like that? Are you familiar with the kind of like the waves of coffee? Yeah,
0: yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I'm I'm probably more familiar now with what we call sort of new wave or third wave. So if you wanna enlighten us about first and second
1: wave. Yeah, so I think first wave is probably just kind of the the using of coffee just for purely caffeine. And then I think the second wave kind of came in around the early 90s. Um, And this is when we're thinking more about coffee for pleasure. Um, So maybe not so much diner coffee, but more like your Starbucks are coming around. Um, You're maybe getting some like early, like third wave where they're thinking more about flavor. And then once the third wave comes around, we're thinking more about the awareness of coffee. We're thinking about craftsmanship. We're thinking about flavors. Uh, And also more transparency now with the beans, where they're coming from, the farmers, fair wages for farmers. Um, And when you think about early third wave companies, you're probably thinking like Stumptown or Counterculture, which is kind of close to me here. Um, So when I got into specialty coffee, it was... (laughs) You know, we might talk about a lot of this tonight, but a lot of my a lot of my background outside of work involves lots of tinkering, lots of (laughs) building things, trying to make things. Um, And a lot of that stems from the things that I saw my dad do. You know, when I was when I was young in the 90s, uh, you know, my dad was brewing beer. Uh, that was kind of at the very beginning of like the craft beer movement, you know, like the hmm. beer stores there, they would have like one yeast, you know, and it was all liquid malt extract. You're not buying like specialty grains. It's not like the explosion it is now. So I got into beer brewing because of him as well. But hmm. uh, coffee, I think he had started roasting coffee first, and this was probably around the year twenty twenty ten. 2010 maybe 2009 um, and I had my I bought a little home roaster around that same time uh, through Sweet Maria's if anybody's into have you heard of Sweet Maria's no okay so it's a uh, it's really it's a green importer but they are huge on consumer education you can go to their website. They can tell you how to turn a popcorn maker into a coffee roaster. They can <laughs> tell you how to roast coffee in a cast iron skillet. Um, and then they also have different roasters for sale. And if you're getting into home roasting, it's actually a great deal because they'll send you, you know, maybe like 15 pounds of greens with your roaster. So I, I kind of got in. I, I probably bought that first roaster from them and I was buying green coffee from them as well. And um, I don't know if the first aha moment I had was with some of the coffee that my dad had made or some of the coffee that I had made uh, on this little home roaster. But if I if I had to guess, it was some Ethiopian that tasted like peach or something like that, you know, something where it was like, wow, this is this is different. Right. Uh Then this can be something different. So that's kind of my first experience with specialty coffee was probably roasted by me. (laughs)
0: but your dad started as a home brewer and then got himself into coffee roasting. And you kind of saw that from your dad and was like, I'm going to give that a try.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know if he bought me that first roaster or I bought it, but yeah. Yeah. That's pretty great. Did you ever do the home brewing yourself? Yeah. So, I got deep into home brewing. Um, (laughs) So, like before I even like went down a commercial path with coffee, This was around, I think, 2011. Uh, I was married to my wife. We were living in Houston, Texas. And we did not have kids yet. And we took an anniversary trip to Hill Country um, around like the New Braunfels area. And we went and toured a craft whiskey distillery. And so this is probably probably fairly early on as well for craft spirits. Uh, But I was big into whiskey at that time. And um, I remember just being blown away. I mean, the the name of the company you may have heard of it. It's called Garrison Brothers. Uh, they had started. I, I think the guy was like an accountant, and then started this whiskey business. And he just had a beautiful place uh, with a big barn with these two beautiful copper stills. Um, I think they had started. They had started their business doing all bourbon mashes. So if you're familiar with bourbon, you know, it's 51% corn. I think they grew some of the corn on their land. Um, And they had started aging in like two gallon barrels. And then they, I think they were putting some stuff away for like 15 gallon barrels. Uh, In my opinion, and I've gone down this road before, craft spirits is tough, you know, especially like whiskeys, where if you're trying to get into that, how do you compete with someone out of Kentucky that has stock that's been aging for 15 years, you know, or 10 years in a, in a large barrel. But I remember being just blown away. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I was like, I want to open a whiskey distillery. So that led me down this, this long (laughs) path of, and this is just kind of the way I am. I was like, I need to learn everything about whiskey. I need to learn about distilling. So I'm going by books on, you know, distilling whiskey I'm running calculations on like this I'm like well it, they're using two gallon barrels. I'm like, what's the surface area of a two gallon barrel like does that make a difference versus like a fifteen gallon barrel? so I'm like running calculations on like the surface area, and like I don't remember what I was doing, but you know I was running all kind of I was running all kind of numbers i was I was like, I need to learn how to distill I need to learn how you know it's a mass balance, so I'm going to work, I'm talking to chemical engineers. And I'm, uh, I'm running my own calculations to see how it works. And then, and then I'm like, well, I need to learn how to make a mash first. So, I really need to make beer. So, I started, you know, th- these, these are how yes. these things go for me. You know, I'm very hard-headed. <laughs> I don't quit. And these things last for many years, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh-huh. so, that was probably like a year thinking about it, you know. I probably told some people, and I do regret doing that. I think when you have these big dreams or these big plans, I think it's important personally from personal experience to hold these things very close (laughs) because there's something that happens when you say it out loud, you know, one, you're going to have all the naysayers. You're going to have these Mm -hmm. dream killers. Uh, People are going to think you're crazy. And and I heard something recently on a podcast. I think it was maybe like Andrew Huberman that says, when you actually say these things out loud, you release some kind of dopamine yeah. that says that, that tells your body that you've done something already, you know? So mm-hmm. you might lose some drive or something. I don't know. That's kind of a sidebar. Anyway. <laughs> so then I was like, I need to get into, I need to get into beer, you know? And, and, and this is all just kind of like on the side, right? I'm still working a full time job. I'm just, But this is how I'm thinking. I'm not thinking I wanna make beer for enjoyment. I'm thinking I wanna make beer so I can learn how to make a whiskey mash, you know? So I started making beer uh, and it was probably not good at first, you know, but that developed over the years. And then I got really good at making beer, you know? I haven't made beer in about a year, but I have, you Hmm. know, I have kegging set up and everything. And I had a friend I taught to brew beer and he he really took off with it now he wins all these competitions in texas i don't drink a whole lot of beer but when he sends me his beer it's just it's just amazing you know he's a hop whisperer he can do anything with the beer his barrel aged beers are amazing i'll send him coffee to put in his barrel aged beers uh wow. it, it's just it's just really neat to see some of these levels uh and some of these things you don't find in a commercial setting you know i don't know why like some commercial beers are really good but some of these home beers where they're just like super fresh and not handled, a whole, you know, beer's tough because you have all this oxidation potential throughout the process and, and they get good about that. But I don't know. There's just something about a really crisp, clean, like Pilsner, where you're not afraid to spend money on the high quality hops. And anyway, so I did beer for a number of years <laughs> and then I, I need to, I'm like, okay, I need to get back to whiskey, right? Yep. Uh, and there's a little problem with whiskey because it's illegal to make in your home. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. Yeah. So I don't know if that's still the case. I would assume so. I don't think it's from like, uh, I was always more concerned about like the safety aspects, you know, like, okay, the first shots that come off are supposedly, um, methanol. So you worry about, is it safe to drink? You know, you hear all the stories about people going blind, so then you do all this research to convince yourself that, oh, it's probably okay. And then, um, you know, you're also, it's it's extremely flammable, you know, if you light this stuff off, I mean, it's just a beautiful blue flame, you know, so you got to be careful what you do, but, and then you can't, since it's illegal, the government supposedly tracks, you know, what, like if you go, you can't just go buy a still online because they're supposed to notify the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. That one. Anyway, that one. Yeah, that one. Okay,
0: they don't like it so much.
1: Yeah, so it's illegal to... And I think it's mainly for tax reasons. And it it probably stems from some law back in the day when you had all the moonshiners. So they're not necessarily concerned about it from a safety standpoint, but they don't want you selling your own products, you know. So anyway, so I was like, I need to make my own still since I can't buy one. So I ended up making a small still... Um, I remember this is so now now we're probably like 2013 time frame because my my daughter's born because I remember like her crawling on the floor and I'm like winding up copper tubing to make my my worm cooler, you know, which is once your distillate comes out, you need to cool it down and recondense it. Uh, And I would go fire that thing up in the garage after she went to bed at like 10 a.m., you know, and then go to work the next day, you know, so I'm just playing around with it and i think the very first batch i made i tried to do like a single malt scotch and i ended up putting it in like a tiny little barrel that i had and i probably didn't prep that barrel right because after a couple of weeks there was like two drops left in the barrel <laughs> you know so it's just so time consuming you know but then of course i'm like, i'm not like okay i don't need to do this i'm like now i need to learn how to make a corn mash cuz i want to make bourbon right So then you find out how hard it is to work with corn just because it's so gelatinous. It's hard to like filter out. So you learn all these different methods, you know, and I ended up making a bourbon mash at some point, but I never turned it completely into a whiskey, you know, it's just, uh, just whoever is in the craft spirit business, that is just gotta be so much work, you know? Yep. Yep. Because yeah. you, you start with a certain volume of product, and then you end up with a very tiny volume of product. You know, <laughs> that's all right. That's how that works. Right. Yep. So anyway, um, so I had been going with coffee for a while at that time as well. So I'm doing probably beer, tiny bit of whiskey, and then coffee. Um, at some point in that time frame, this little roaster I had had caught on fire. I think I almost burned the house down. Sick. So I, th- this was like a little roaster. I don't even know if they make it anymore. It was called like a fresh roast or uh, it was made by Nesco, I believe. I tried to find it the other day and I don't know if they sell it anymore. But what it was is it was a glass auger and it would circulate hot air through this glass carafe. It was a glass carafe. So you can see the beans and it had an auger that turned so that the beans don't scorch or anything. So they get mixed well and it would circulate air through this real hot air. So it's like a convection roaster. And it had a catalytic converter on it so that it can, you can run it inside the house and it doesn't form smoke, right? And, uh, you know, looking back, it's like, why would you ever leave a roaster? But this roaster, you set the time, you know, and you kind of watch it and you can call it based on time. That's like the only input you have. And I, I was doing, I remember I was doing two batches of Guatemalans. So I did a batch of Guatemalan. It was a real chaffy coffee. Do you know what? chaff is well i know what chaff is but
0: you're calling it a ch- real chaffy coffee The coffee
1: this this particular coffee had a lot of chaff on it i guess um and, and maybe most washed coffees do you know but and in, in re- in back then i didn't probably didn't know what i was truly roasting so this mm-hmm. coffee i knew it produced a lot of chaff which is a very like thin paper-like substance if you think about like a wood shaving, it's like th- the th- like almost like a see-through wood shaving. So you can imagine just how flammable these are. And this roaster had like a little cup that would catch the chaff. And I probably didn't dump it out between batches. I ran a second batch and I went and hopped in the shower upstairs. And when I came downstairs, it was just smoke everywhere. I don't think my wife was home. I just kind of like freaked out. It was just charred and smoking I think it had like a big internal fire, whole house was just black smoke. I I picked it up with oven mitts and took it outside and then I hosed it off. So that was the end of that roaster. And then after that, I said, you know, I would love to be able to roast one pound at a time. Cause I was like, I go through about, that's about how much I drink a week, you know, between me and my wife. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to be able to do a whole pound at a time. And if you look at at that time, there weren't many roasters that could do that much. But even then, they're they're very expensive, you know. And even though they say they can do one pound, they really can probably do less, you know. So I was like, well, obviously, I need to build a roaster. So I kind of (laughs) went down that path, you know. And that roaster, you know, long story short, I learned so much about coffee roasting from roasting on that roaster. Hmm. Over the past 10 plus years. And I still have that roaster today and I used it to sample roast, you know, and I've made modifications to that roaster up until probably six months ago. And now I can hook it up to my computer and I can run uh, profiles on it and I have all kind of good control on it. I learned so much about the different just how fickle coffee roasting is and just how all the different parameters just affect everything, you know. Hmm. So huh. that's kind of my story so, with roasting, I guess. Yeah.
0: So if I tomorrow were like, all right, I'm getting into coffee roasting, I'm gonna buy my own roaster, what's like the price range on those? What would I, you know, is what kind of maybe a lower ish end range to the like if there is such the thing as the higher end range of these roasters, I imagine there is. Yeah, that's a great
1: question. So um I haven't looked at home roasters in a while. I looked at a Beamer the other day because I recommended that to somebody. I did have a Beamer at some point in that story that I just told you. And I ended up taking the the drum out of it and using it on my roaster. But that it looks like a big microwave. You can put it in your kitchen. You can do it outside. You can do it inside because it also takes away the smoke with its um, filtration. Uh, And it can do, it can do a pound, um, but it's really like maybe better suited for like a quarter pound to half a pound, I would say. But you can buy that on Sweet Maria's website for, I think it's going for like $400 now. And they will also send you, I think like 15 bags of coffee with it. So that's a pretty sweet deal. If you want to go like bare bones and you really want to like learn about coffee roasting. I mean, a lot of people start on like a whirly pop or like a popcorn popper. And uh, Sweet Maria's kind of has instructions on how you can kind of tune that. I've never done that before, but I would think that's like a great, like cheap place to start because Mm -hmm. your beans just sit there and they get a good convection roast. You're getting good airflow. You can stick a probe in it. and Knowing what I know now, I mean, you could take that probe and you could hook it up to there's a sensor called a fidget. Once I knew I was going to go commercial, you know, I had never read a book on coffee roasting when I decided that I was definitely going to start commercial roasting. You know, I, I had read I had read different blog posts and articles, but I just learned so much through experience and through hardheadedness, you know, and, and honestly, that's how every roaster kind of learns you. You're always doing little experiments because there's no, there's no right way to roast a coffee bean. You're always roasting it, getting a profile, and then taking that data and correlating it to the taste. And then once you have enough experience, you can say, okay, I just roasted that Guatemala. The body's a little thin. I think I can do this to get a little more creaminess, a little more body out of it. Uh, or maybe it's a little too acidic. So I want to mute some of that acidity. So, there's different things you learn, but there's no specific way to roast. Anyone that tells you there is, is probably very arrogant. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they, their coffee probably isn't all that either, you know? So, huh. that's, what I, was, I like that's what I would say to shots, that. <laughs> shots fired. Well, um, there's a lot of negative people uh, in the space. So, I'm, I'm not a coffee person by trade. So kind of from the outside looking in, there's a lot of people that throw shade on coffee roasters saying we need more consistency or saying you shouldn't buy from these manufacturers, you know. So but it's an extremely fickle process, you know, so I, I'm very careful not to do that. There's there's lots of options out there. There's no need to do that. So. Hmm. So I
0: I want to get into this. I, I suspect that people listening to this are thinking um okay so the dude builds his own whiskey still he builds his own coffee roaster you just said you didn't get into roasting that wasn't sort of your trade i mean it is your trade now but you were an engineer by trade talk a bit about that your engineering background um you know where did you go to school what kind of work were you doing um because I feel like that's maybe not the most common background for coffee roasters to necessarily have
1: Yeah, I, I don't think so, and and again, everything I say is with a caveat that I'm learning, you know where i pro- I know more than I did ten years ago, so I know more probably than someone that just got into coffee a year ago, but I, I don't know everything, so I'll just put a caveat on that but It doesn't seem like there's a lot of engineers. Um, You know, you see a lot of like people that work at coffee shops kind of want to start their own thing. It seems like there's a lot of that. I I think the two, though, just from kind of listening to different things, it sounds like there are a lot of people that say that have that aha moment with coffee. Maybe they have like a marketing background and then they say, I want to get into this. And then they they hit it hard with the marketing and then they learn how to roast. I think that's probably fairly common. And that's probably a better way to do it from a business standpoint, honestly, you know, because that's all the stuff that I am now trying to learn. You're learning the marketing side. I I don't know.
0: I'm a pretty big believer in dial the product. I'd rather have someone dial the product than have a iffy product, but be really good
1: at marketing. Yeah. And that's that That's me too, for sure, you know, and I'm very like I went and dropped some coffee off to a lady today and I was cold pitching to her that I'd like to get my coffee in your store. And I'm just I just know how fickle coffee is. And I roasted this coffee and I had um I had roasted it exactly the way exact like to the to the degree that I had roasted it before. But still, I was like, I popped into work. I made myself a pour over. I tasted it, and I'm like, okay, let's go sell to her. You know, I have to do that. When I'm working mm-hmm. events, I'm always tasting my coffees. I yes. just, I just have to do that because I want to make sure, you know, it is as intended. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's a changing mm-hmm. process too. It's going to change day to day. Your taste is going to change day to day. It's fickle, and if you ever brew coffee, you know it's fickle. But let's get. I guess you want to get back to my background. Yeah, So I graduated from LSU. I'm from Louisiana um, in 2007 with a mechanical engineering degree. And I went straight into the refinery, the ExxonMobil refinery in Baton Rouge. Um, And I don't know if you're familiar with Louisiana at all, but community coffee is a big coffee there. Everybody drinks community coffee. Hmm. So they're like a big kind of... maybe like a second wave kind of coffee. You know, everybody drinks dark, dark coffee there. So that's how we all grew up drinking coffee, you know, real dark coffee with lots of cream, lots of sugar, you know. And I think a lot of people start off their coffee journey like that. Anyway, I started out in the refinery. You know, it's a real, these, these chemical plants and refineries, they're 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 very i think you would like working in an environment like that jonathan it's very like high intensity um you seem like a very high intensity person um there's always lots of action right there's there's potential for fires stuff can catch on fire there's lots of hot loud equipment and you're getting to make decisions on things that break and help fix them and um so I, I, i started off my career in fixed equipment working with piping and heat exchangers and vessels And then I got the opportunity to move to Houston with ExxonMobil Upstream. So that's oil and gas. I was in an office. Um, I had some travel, but it's a lot of just project management. It's very slow. You go days without talking to people. You're kind of working on documents. Um, You know, we're working on getting these documents ready for a project that to take like, uh, you know, gas off the North slope of Alaska that may or may not go, you know? So it was really hard for me to go from like this high intensity, like grind environment where I was learning so much to going to this office environment where I knew I still had a lot to learn about, you know, the, the technical side of things. So I really did not work well there. You know, I didn't, it wasn't a good fit for me. Uh, So I think in 2011, I quit and I went to a company called Lionel Basell. it's another chemical plant in Houston. And that was a great decision. So I'm back in the chemical plant, I'm back to wearing a a jumpsuit every day. You know, It's a very like, uh, it's not a very professional environment, you're working with a lot of blue collar people, you get to work on equipment that's breaking. It's just a real fun, satisfying environment, you know. So I I did love my job, I love learning. But it is very, very tiring, you know, because hmm. when when stuff breaks or stuff goes down, you know, these are 24-7 operations. The company's losing sometimes millions of dollars a day, you know. So, you know, maybe there goes three months of your life where you're just working around the clock shifts to get stuff back up and running, you know. So I had a good background. By the time I, I got into coffee, um, you know, full time, I, I had spent a lot of time with equipment And working on, you know, very like hands-on kind of stuff. You know, I wasn't turning wrenches in the plant, not typically, uh, but I've always enjoyed the hands-on thing. So, seems like it's then been
0: about 10 years since you've been roasting beans. Over those 10 years, have you developed a
1: favorite type of bean to roast? That's a great question. So I would start off by saying that I personally love all types of coffees. You know, I, I see I see the merit in most coffees. So in case you don't know, like specialty coffee is typically some uh, Arabica varietal. So some some roasters will list the different coffee bean varieties on their bag. I'm actually putting together a primer for consumers right now. I don't personally think that's that important for the consumer to know like what type of Arabica variety, but just know that in specialty coffee, uh, most of the beans that you're drinking are Arabica. The other variety or the other type of coffee bean is Robusta. You may have heard of that. It's it's yep. uh, very present in like Vietnamese coffees. It often has kind of like a rubbery taste. Sometimes I think in the specialty world, people are reintroducing that a little component to help get that crema on like an espresso shot. Um, But again, I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert in espresso. It sounds like that's, that's kind of more your (laughs) new wheelhouse, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am definitely not an expert in espresso, but um, I am, I am spending a lot of time down that rabbit hole these days for sure. That's an expensive rabbit hole to go down. (laughs) Mm, You're telling me. Um, So, then talk a bit more about some of the challenges. You've already said that roasting can be very fickle. Um, and I guess I'm curious with your engineering background, I would assume part of the battle then is trying to hit that consistency and finding different ways. You talked about you've now hooked your roaster up to your computer where you can really carefully monitor and and look at profiles Um, Talk a bit more about that, I guess, marrying of engineering
1: and, well, the art of roasting. Okay, yeah, that's a great question. So I would start off by saying just to give you guys a little background on uh, roasting curves. um, So most roasters nowadays have a computer hooked up to their roaster where they can get live feedback And they may have a number of parameters that go into there, but they at least have a probe that's inside the drum that they call the bean temperature probe. It's not really reading the temperature of the bean, but you can imagine if you have a temperature probe inside a drum and it's covered up with cold beans, as you put heat into that drum, the beans will start to heat up and start to heat up that probe. So that's kind of what you're reading. So we can make extrapolations from that. Uh, I guess when I started out roasting, I, you know, I started out with nothing, just using maybe time. And then I started out, I put a thermocouple in my roaster under the drum and I started recording that data and I put one above the drum. I started recording that data and recording time. And then eventually I figured out how to get a probe inside my drum at home and I started recording that data and time. But I was never looking at that data like live, you know. So when when I knew I was going to go commercial, I was like, oh, man, i got to learn how to roast on curves. So I never finished telling you this, but you can buy this $100 sensor. It's called a fidget sensor. Um, And you can hook that up to a software called Artisan, which is freeware. or They have a free version of it. And you could hook your popcorn popper up to that. Any temperature probe that goes into it, you can hook it up to that. So I have three probes hooked up to that fidget, and it goes into my computer. And then I bought five pounds of a dry process, Ethiopia and five pounds of a Columbia. And I was like, all right, I need to learn how to dial in a coffee using probes. So I did that before my roaster came in. And then, you know, now, now, once I have my big roaster, you've heard some of my background. I was thinking about going with a cheap roaster. I was like, I can make anything work. I'm kind of arrogant when it comes to that. But I was like, "What am I doing? Like, if, if I want to be a true precision craft roaster, I know how fickle this is. I really need to be looking for to spend the money on a really high quality roaster." And I ended up at Mill City Roasters for a number of reasons. Uh, but their their owner is just a great guy. He's a uh, he's an engineer by trade, and you know he even talked me talked me out of buying a a much more expensive roaster than I thought I needed. He, he wanted to sell me one of his cheapest roasters. And I ended up going with a, a six kilo versus, you know, like a one or a three just because of what I think I can do with it. But anyway, so that machine is, you know, I'm getting a lot of input into the machine. I have pressure sensors on it. It's got all kinds of bells and whistles and data. And um, so just to kind of like tell you like how fickle coffee roasting is, On that machine, I can repeat profiles like very well manually. It took some time. There's a learning curve for me on how to control the machine. But after you have that, you kind of get that repeatable. But what you notice is that, and and I think most consumers, like, so for example, if I take a coffee and I finish it at a temperature of, let's say, 396 degrees, okay, and I run that exact same profile for the same amount of time. And I finish it at 398 degrees, two degrees difference. And I put those coffees side by side. I would bet that you could tell a slight difference between those coffees. So that just kind of speaks to me on how fickle that process is, you know. So temperature is very important. Time is very important. And that's kind of what you're using while you're roasting. So despite all of these
0: complexities, you still decide I'm doing this, I'm launching, a coffee roasting company, Calibration Coffee Lab. How did you get there? And what has that process looked like of being a young company in a world where there's some really good coffee
1: roasting companies out there already? I guess, uh, long story short, I ended up quitting my full-time job in 2018 for a variety of reasons. It was basically... I feel like I've had two windows or a couple windows in my life where I knew that if I did not take a certain action, I would regret that later in life. Okay. And quitting my job in 2018 was one of those decisions because we knew we could get out of Houston and we could go move to somewhere where maybe uh, was a little more enjoyable. So that's how we ended up in Greenville in 2020. Okay. I did some contracting jobs with my old company after I quit, but Ultimately after I quit, I knew I wanted to get my own thing going. So it took a little while, but and, and I thought about doing it in Houston, but once I landed in Greenville, South Carolina, um, you know, that's when COVID had kind of just started and we kind of got settled in. And then I think it was 2021, the end of 2021, I started getting real serious about it. I think I'd read a book called The 5 a.m. Club. I started waking up. You know, I got two kids, so time is precious. You know, every—I don't think I'd be here if I didn't have kids because you just realize just how important your time is, right? And um, I started waking up at 5 and— maybe doing a quick workout and then just getting my head straight and just doing a little more strategic thinking. I'm not much of a strategic thinker. (laughs) So, but if I carve out the time and make time for it, good things happen, you know? So that's when, that's when I knew uh, it's like, let's go forward with this. This is something I can run by myself. Uh, This is something that I know I could just pour all my passion into it and I can share this with the world. So, um, end of 20, so I guess the beginning of 2022, I started looking for places to put my roaster. That was kind of a complex process, but ended up at a place near uh, downtown Greenville. It's a, it's a great little mixed manufacturing space. It's just a little 20 by 20 space I have with good rent. And um, yeah, I got my roaster in June, started playing around with it. And I started selling uh, officially in September. So that's kind of how I launched, you know, That's really interesting because
0: I remember I actually met you in Crested Butte um, somewhat randomly, but we have a mutual friend and I think I had calibration coffee beans in like December of 2022 and I was like, I don't know. This guy's pretty new to this. What what are we really going to be getting here? And I was really pretty blown away. I remember <laughs> your friend was like, "Hey, Alex would, you know, he loved to talk about coffee and he loves that you're an enthusiast and would love to send you some beans." I was like, "Oh god. I don't know. I mean, he's pretty new at this and, you know, frankly, we kind of have this attitude with new ski companies or bike companies right like look let people take their time really dial in their product it's it's you know and so i was like okay well sure i'll check out some of the beans and it was really good and then i was like all right well give me alex's email because I now I'm like okay this guy and you just said like you you didn't just start this you've been roasting for a decade right and I think people can get a sense of you tend to get pretty methodical and meticulous about things uh when you when you commit but those were pretty early days then I don't think I knew quite how soon after kind of the official launch of calibration I was getting some of those beans
1: yeah that's a, that's a good point I remember that um that so I launched in September And I I launched with a washed, organic Mexican coffee. It was a great, really clean chocolate coffee. And I sold out of that by the time I met you in Crested Butte. Love Crested Butte, by the way. Uh, And I remember, yeah, we went and we went and had lunch. Our friend Mm -hmm. was like, come meet this coffee nerd. And you were talking to the waiter, I think, about coffee. And I looked over at him. I was like, watch this. I was like, hey, have you guys ever had Calibration Coffee Lab? I was like, yeah, they're pretty good. (laughs) And you're like, no. He said that? I said that. I said that. I was like, have you ever tried Calibration Coffee Lab? And you're like, no, I've never heard of them. And I was like, oh, yeah, they're really good. You should try them. (laughs) And then I think I dropped some beans off at your house (laughs) the next day. But um, no, I, I really appreciate that. You know, I mean, you know, so early on. I would say just now I'm really getting a good feel for that machine. But I mean, early on, I roasted through a whole 50 pound box of a Colombian coffee and threw every single batch away, you know, Hmm. trying to just Mm -hmm. get it, just try to understand this machine just because it's so different from my home machine, you know, And and I think that was a good investment. You know, I probably lost... 250 to 300 bucks on that you know but it, it was worth it to for the learnings you know you're always kind of doing experiments and now i kind of have an idea of what these coffees do kind of how to run my gas settings for various coffees and if a roaster's listening to this they're probably thinking that i'm like over you know analyzing these things or but or thinking maybe it's more simple but i think you you kind of forget how how hard it is at the beginning you know but yeah, I, I love. Um, it sounds like that you like some of those more like chocolatey coffees. We've been talking a lot about this because we've done
0: three dedicated episodes already just on coffee gear. And the my biggest answer to your you know statement there is I think my current machine, this Yura I have, I think that machine operates best with a sort of medium to darker end of the spectrum, that chocolatey thing. I think um, I've said this quite a bit. Um, so if we're really veering into fruitier, lighter roasts, to me so far, that doesn't feel like the forte of the machine I've been using the most. And, you know, you were saying roasts and beans is fickle, but man, the impact that the equipment the coffee gear you're using to brew this stuff, massive impact on all of these things. So, but yeah, that's the kind of long answer. Um, and that's why I'm also in this process of thinking through and, and perhaps picking up some other gear. Um, and I also said this on a Crafted podcast because as I get beans in from different roasters, I don't want to have their beans having to be like... Subject to the whims of my gear, right? To determine if it's good or not. So I'm kind of in a weird spot where I'm hoping to get it's probably going to end up being a few different options here to then use the brewing gear or brewing equipment that will most allow a particular roast to shine that's what we're kind of going for but yeah current gear that's why i think yeah with that URA, give me that kind of chocolatey chocolatey roast yeah
1: i got you and um you know you asked me earlier what kind of coffees i like to roast like from a roasting standpoint I like the ones that like I can just sit there and not have to like think about how to control the machines, you know, <laughs> so, things that are like very like repeatable, you know, that are going to behave for me. Uh, but in terms of like drinking coffees, kind of what I noticed, I took a trip to California recently and I, we, I went to a coffee shop in Santa Barbara and I had this amazing uh, Ethiopian coffee. I was like, this is so good. So we went back <laughs> the next day and I was like. I do this a lot at coffee shops just because I'm curious. I'm always taking data in, right? And I'm like, I wonder how their like Guatemalan is, you know, I want to, mm-hmm. I want, or I wanted to try something maybe like a little chocolateier. I, I do that with coffee shops around here too. I'll be like, man, that was like an amazing coffee, but it was probably like a very expensive, like $30 a bag coffee too. I want to know how they do mm-hmm. with like their like run of the mill. And, and what I have kind of found just through experience or just, just, through testing different tasting different people's stuff is if someone tends to roast kind of light, you'll kind of see that in a lot of their coffees. And of course, like freshness has a lot to do with that. As the coffees mm-hmm. age, um, especially like that very first week, they can be kind of unstable, kind of fickle, and they'll get a little darker over time. So I, I always say that I like to design my coffees for like the middle of the cup. So you know, some coffees uh, you'll go and you'll take a, maybe you go to a coffee shop and you take that first sip and it's piping hot and you're like, wow, this is good. It's a lot of chocolate in there. But what happens is as coffee begins to cool, it gets a little more acidic. And then you'll notice, Oh, maybe I don't like this as much. Maybe it's a little, I hate to use the word sour. Let's just say acidic, but it, maybe it's a little too acidic, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So I would, if, if I was assessing that coffee for my own if it was my own coffee, I would say, well, I need to I need to take some of that acidity off in the roasting process so that as soon as that initial heat dies off, it's a good, enjoyable cup throughout. And I hope that shines through on my roasting. Now, I will say, I, I know I've made some mistakes. Uh, some of the mistakes I have made is rushing a release. Uh, so now, you know, I, I'm turning over coffees fairly quickly since I'm so small. And I'm just roasting 50-pound bags of coffee. So I do, right now I'm doing, I'm at half capacity on my roaster. So I'm putting in six pounds. I get out about five pounds. Um, So I turn over coffees fairly quickly, but I don't like to rush them, you know. So like if I'm going to do a new release, what, what works well for me is if I'm selling at like a local farmer's market or something like that, I'll roast the coffee like a week before and then I'll taste it. You know, I always cup the coffees the day after to get a, a good baseline on taste. But then I'll kind of wait a whole week, and if it's still good, I'll sell it at the market. If it's a very, it's a brand new release, I'll probably sell it at a discounted price. And then, then maybe, maybe I'll sit with it another week, and then I'll release it on my website. You know, so I'm trying to be a little more meticulous about these releases because. Just all that to say, I have been burned before by releasing something a little too quick that tasted great at one week. And then one week comes, and then it's just like a bitter, like black tea. It's not something I wanted out of the coffee. That's not why I bought the coffee, you know? So, this seems
0: to be something that maybe it's just me, but I feel like I'm hearing about this more, which is pretty much every bag of coffee that i see will have on it the date that it's roasted but to speak to what you were just talking about which is giving uh some roasted beans time to kind of stabilize i feel like i'm hearing more um just maybe in the past six to 12 months about like you don't actually always want to drink or brew those beans right after they've been roasted you might actually want to wait a bit and so if that's true should we be seeing like not just basically born on dates but dates where like windows of where we think these beans would be sort of right in that sweet spot
1: to brew what are your thoughts on that man that's that's a tough one you know Uh so i'm 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 very new to this biz, so I'm I'm still kind of, you know, I dropped some coffees off today to a grocery store, a local grocery store, and what I'm, what I immediately am thinking is, okay, I roasted this coffee five days ago. I'm like, how long is this coffee going to sit on the shelf, you know, and that's kind of, you're kind of at the whim of the retailer there, you know, I I don't want it sitting for like over a month, because some of these coffees actually taste pretty good, you know, at like six weeks but i don't know like i'm i'm really making sure that they're hitting full flavor good flavor at one week and and with Ethiopians i see it a lot like you don't it tastes kind of flat and then at one week you'll start getting like those good like berry flavors coming through or you know some of those notes that that's why you bought that coffee you know really come through and and hold so i think it's it's maybe I try to educate people, um, through email and things like that and talk, talk to that effect. Um, but I, I don't know if you, you know, you might be hurting yourself as a seller, right? (laughs) Putting that on the bag saying this coffee has peaked, right? Mm -hmm. So what they do in grocery stores is they put a, they don't even put a roasted on date. They put a best buy date so that, because that coffee has probably gone through some big supply chain and probably gets to the store maybe a month after roast, you know, so. Yeah,
0: maybe I haven't been buying the super, super big bulk stuff. So like the specialty bags I see usually are having that roasted on, roasted on date.
1: Yeah, and you shouldn't buy, like if if I'm a consumer, I'm not, it's kind of like an IPA, right? You want to see the date on the can because I want to know how fresh those hops are. But with coffee, Yeah, I don't want to buy it three week old or four week old coffee, you know, I I kind of want to know that it's it's fresh and I can get through this bag before it's not any good, you know.
0: But it sounds like this might be actually one of the advantages of being a young company that's not doing massive volume. I mean, you were telling me like for you, it's it's a I guess problem is the right word to keep stuff around and in stock i mean you're getting beans in you're roasting them you're getting them to where you want them to be before you send but you're going to move through those beans pretty fast
1: yeah so when we're talking about like green so you know the coffee i don't know how detailed you want to get but a coffee bean is the seed of the cherry of the coffee plant right Mm -hmm. so it has two seeds in there and then they take those seeds out they process them that of course influences flavor but once we get those seeds as roasters, they're ready to go into the roaster. Those, those, those beans will, will be good for a year, a year plus, you know, if they're high quality beans. Uh, maybe some will drop off in flavor, but after they're roasted, Yeah, ideally, I'm getting that to the consumer as fast as possible. So yeah, right now, not being in a lot of stores, you could say that's to an advantage because, and and online as well. So like if I'm doing an online order, I'm usually roasting. Let's say I roast on a Monday. I come in on Tuesday. I cup all these roasts, them. Okay, yep, those roasts are good and I will ship them that same day. So then let's say maybe three days for shipping. If it's going across the country, maybe four days. They're getting that at like peak time to drink the coffee, right? So that's an ideal situation. Or if I'm selling at like a market and the, the beans are, you know, one week old or less, that's an ideal situation as well. I want to hear you
0: talk a bit about the Calibration Coffee Lab beans that I've been kind of cycling through for the last several weeks here. Um, one 4W over N. I don't know if you're just calling that 4West over N or do you call it 4W over N? So the story
1: behind that is it is a blend that I have And 4W over end is an equation that we kind of use in the chemical plants for, it's kind of a tolerance for balancing machinery rotors. So I was just trying to kind (laughs) of speak to my engineering background. No one gets what it is. My wife said it's a dumb name, you know, but I was just trying to say how balanced this blend is, you know. And so Uh, what what are your thoughts on blends, Jonathan?
0: I don't know that I currently have big thoughts on blends per se. I mean, like like when I think about blends, my brain goes to just the wine world, right? Where blends are an integral part of so much winemaking. And, you know, for the, you know, for the vintner to get that juice, you know, with exactly the characteristics that he or she is looking for. Um, so I, I I think I've spent more time thinking about and talking with people about the art of whiskey blending and, you know, wine
1: blending and actually maybe less on the coffee side. Okay. So, um, so from what I understand, again, I'm new to this industry is people will blend for consistency. You know, if you think like, uh, if, if you want a real consistent coffee, go to McDonald's, go to Chick-fil-A, go to Dunkin' Donuts. They have people... That are dedicated to, I've heard they go into like a dark room and they have to be able to taste certain things and, you know, they have to be able to develop these really consistent blends that mm-hmm. taste the same at every single Dunkin' Donuts around the country all year round, right? Uh, so that's, that's one way to, to think about it is just having this consistent offering year round. Um, mm-hmm. I, coming into this business, I was always thinking single origin, you know, these coffees are so fun, every coffee's different. Um, but what changed my thoughts on blends was I was on a trip in San Diego. I was at, uh, I stopped by a roaster called dark horse roasters. And I told you earlier how I had bought five pounds each of a natural Ethiopia and a Wash Colombian. Well, they had done a blend with a Wash Colombian and a natural Ethiopia. And I had been tasting so many of these recently from my own coffees I could taste those components in there. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like this really works, you know? So if you think about it from a standpoint of creativity, it kind of opens up all kinds of windows hmm. and, or doors, and it, um, it's a completely different coffee, you know? So it's really mm-hmm. interesting. Like you might have like this chocolatey Guatemala, which I use in my 4W over in. And when I put it into the, the blend with a natural Ethiopia, you know, I get that berry kick from the natural Ethiopian, but I also get like more of like a brown sugar kind of like date. Uh, and, and I say on my website that I'm going to update these flavor profiles as the coffees change because I try to be very fluid. And I expect that blend will change next month as I cycle mm. in some new coffees. But that's kind of that kind of changed my thought perspective on blends. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I would say is I recently launched a subscription service and some roasters do it different Well, they'll offer like subscriptions on like every single type of coffee. But since I'm turning over coffee so much, I'm just doing right now a roaster's choice where I think you can do like two to four bags a month. It's a really good deal. It's I think the, the price per bag is like 17 bucks and then it's, it's probably free shipping because it's free shipping over 50 bucks. So uh, it's a really good deal and it's kind of like a playground to experience new coffees, some coffees that I haven't released yet, uh, but I did a blend the other day, I called it Hello Sunshine and it was a blend of a washed Ethiopia and a natural Ethiopia and huh. I know you, maybe you're not huge on like the lighter roast, but it was, it was so good, you know, it tasted like pineapple and honey and orange, hmm. it was just so different from the other two coffees, you know, so now I view blends as kind of like a a fun way to introduce some different things, you know?
0: hmm Yeah, no, I blends are not a bad word at all, it, especially the more vintners and whiskey makers and the more time I've spent, you know, at vineyards and at distilleries and breweries. And, you know, so talking about it now in the coffee world, I mean, that itself is an art and it can produce new and different things. So, um, and again, I'm not anti-light roast. I I am not, (laughs) what I will tell you is I am not into super light roast fruity espressos. Oh yeah. But I like light roasts. I just, for again, back to my own home gear and what I'm using the most right now, those really light, really fruity, kind of delicate roasts aren't, aren't what's working best with my, with the machine I use the most. So we'll, um, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's kind of on me. I do have that Mocha master that, that is much better than the Euro so far at those for those lighter roasts. But I think we're just going to go into the straight pour over style yeah. uh, soon for that.
1: Yeah. A Hario, I use a Hario V60 all the time at work for consistency. Yep, And uh, it does so great with with light roasts, you know. Yep. And I have I have all the brewers. I just haven't played around and I've had many brewers over the years. I just haven't played around with like the Kalita or the Chemex yet just because the Hario is so so easy to use. But back on that, that chocolate note, you know, I was telling you earlier that some I've noticed that some roasters, if they tend to roast light, they tend to roast everything light. Mm-hmm. That, that's a big generalization and don't beat me up over that. It's just something I've noticed at certain coffee shops. Um, so I, I really strive to like, if I have a, ch- I always want to have like a good chocolatey offering, something you can just mm-hmm. drink every single day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, those are, those are really hard coffees to roast cause you're always kind of flirting on the edge of, is it going to get too dark over time? Is it going to mm-hmm. get bitter? Uh, And You know, because you're always kind of playing around right on the edge of like, it could go smoky on me. It could go bitter. It could go too nutty. You know, so those are really difficult coffees. And I remember the last time I was in Crested Butte, I went to First Ascent up there on the mountain and I had one of their blends and I was like drinking it. And I went back in there and I asked the barista, I was like, what coffee is this? And she told me what it was. I went and looked at the bag. It was a Guatemalan coffee from Tanango, And I had been roasting a Guatemala from Nago and they just killed it. You know, like just the way it was, just like chocolatey throughout. I find that you, you don't find that a lot. You know, with with coffee roasters, and Guatemalans can be tricky because they can still have. That's why I love Guatemalans because they still have that like fruit component, but they can still have that like just really good chocolatey characteristics. You know, so mm-hmm. I too love the chocolatey coffees.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it, I mean now we're just. No one should care about this part. But if you said in general, you get to pick sort of one country of origin um, for coffees that I've enjoyed, it would be for me, Ethiopians. Um, And I do think that's probably more true when I was using, you know, in preparing coffee with that Mocha Master more, which is, is effectively a kind of modified pour over style. Um, Ethiopia would be my answer today, but as I'm moving into this other realm of espresso, I'm not sure if that will continue to be true. Right? I mean, we'll we'll kind of find out here, and um, and that's where I think getting into and exploring more blends. Might be quite interesting for me. I don't. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So that that's um, the other arena for blends is people will make a, a special espresso blend, especially something that goes well with milk drinks. <laughs> now I drink all my coffee black, but I don't throw shade on anybody that drinks their coffee with milk or cream. You know, you should drink it how you want. What I've noticed in the specialty realm is is at least with consumers talking to people and through internet research is people are people are are overwhelmed and they're they're scared they're going to be judged I feel like and there's just no place for that I mean this should be an enjoyable process it is complex so let's educate people but let's yeah. let's do it in the right way you know mm-hmm. and um, again I, I think an espresso espresso blends are uh, that, that's another place where you see a lot of blends like I was saying so I've heard good things about the 4W over N as an espresso because it does have that like Ethiopia component to it it also has that Guatemala But I haven't developed a specific espresso blend yet, but hopefully, to come. Yeah, hope
0: hopefully soon as I um as soon as I figure out my gear purchases for the espresso machine, I'll be bugging you. Yeah.
1: Okay. Next month, I have so I'm getting ready for a big summer of farmers markets, which is always a great time for me to just you know get some reps on some. Coffee's because I I generally do okay at some of these markets. And um, I have some, I had this Columbia. I don't think you ever got to try it. It was from, so I I told you about Sweet Maria's. They -hmm. have a wholesale division called Coffee Shrub. I've been buying a lot of coffee from them lately, just because I just think the quality is just so good. Um, And they have one, I think they have a little project with some farmers in Guatemala. And I have this Guatemalan coming out that's just like, chocolate and raisin and like cinnamon it's just syrupy It's so good and then I have this Columbia that I had from them I had sold out of it but it's just I bought 100 pounds of it it's just like a good like dark chocolate real smooth has a little bit of like apple acidity if I roast it right you know and it's just such a good chocolatey coffee so I'm excited for the chocolatey coffees that I have coming out next (laughs) next month. Next one. Well, if
0: people would like to try some of your Calibration Coffee Lab beans, what should they do? Where should they find them?
1: So the, the best way to do it is go on the website at calibrationcoffeelab.com. Uh, if, I would sign up for the email list because you should get a, um, a welcome email for 15% off your first order. Um, I don't have the automated process going yet for subscriptions, but if I look up my discount codes, I have one called Coffee Love, all caps, that gives you $10 off first subscription and cancel at any time. I mean, that's a great deal. I'll probably lose money on that one, (laughs) at least for the first one, you know, especially if you cancel it. But I mean, you know, it's a great way to give it a try. Yeah. Uh, I do $5 flat rate shipping. Um, And and again, I'm just, I'm still figuring this stuff out. You know, I'm still losing money on shipping right now. So I I haven't optimized all that yet. I'm still really just trying to get some volume out there and then we can optimize that stuff later. Hmm.
0: Well, I've been a big fan so far of the probably five different beans from you that I've tried. And um, so I would very much encourage people check it out for themselves give it a shot worst case you try it and Alex loses a bunch of money that's fine his job is just to keep the quality bar high and um it's been really fun I, I I've loved this conversation hearing about moving from a home distilling and then the swerve into home brewing and then the move into home roasting and then um you know actually making the jump into starting a coffee roasting company. And so that's been a a fun story to hear. And, um, you know, I'm I'm expecting uh, good things out of you going forward, man. Yeah,
1: I appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking the time for the conversation. And yeah, my focus is on quality. So I'm excited to be able to, you know, as I grow, continue to improve that and, you know, get the tools to improve it even further, you know. Appreciate the
0: time. Um, keep doing good work. And uh, we'll talk to you real soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks to Alex for the conversation. And remember, when you place your first order at Calibration Coffee Lab, use the code Love to get that discount on your first order. And having now tried a number of roasts from Alex... I can vouch for what he's up to, and I would love for our community to give this guy a shot. Of course, I also want to say thanks to our strikingly handsome producer, Justin Bob, and thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these crafted conversations, then please take just 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And that will help us keep this whole thing going and growing. All right, everybody, thanks so much. And we will talk to you again next week.